Hi, everyone. This is Michael for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Jean Wiener, the founder and director of the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Biodiversity, or FOPROBIM. I met Jean through a colleague of mine in the Dominican Republic, Freddie Payton, who is the director of the Dominican NGO Agrofantera, and who I've been working with there for the last seven years. Jean and his organization have worked for decades on marine conservation in Haiti, where Jean is from. Jean played a critical role in helping to establish marine protected areas in Haiti, and in 2015 was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize in recognition for his work there. Jean and I talked about his career and inspirations, and his work to develop marine conservation in Haiti, both formally and from the bottom up. We also discussed the challenges that he has confronted and continues to deal with under often difficult social and political conditions, and what he hopes for in the future. Well, great, Jean. Um, I am excited to ask you the questions that uh, we had talked a little bit about beforehand. And uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know lots of people are busy for lots of different reasons these days. So I'd like to start with what I call the origin story question. I want to ask you what led you to uh, pursue a career in environmental conservation in the first place? Um, what were the more formative experiences and later steps that led you to start this NGO that we'll talk about and be a leader in the conservation space? Well, sure. Again, well, thanks for having me again, Michael. Um, well, uh, kind of a long story, but we'll get going on it. I uh, just started with my love for the ocean. Uh, I remember going, you know, my parents would uh, like to go to the ocean once in a while themselves. So of course they'd take me along. I was the only, the only child. So of course I'd be along with them. And we used to have a friend who used to have a house down along the Northern shore of the Southern peninsula. So we'd go out there. Uh, he had two sons, uh, one just a little bit older than me, one a little bit younger. And we just really went at it in the water. Uh, we spend the whole day in there. We'd, you know, plan on coming back. We'd, uh, we'd snorkel around and look at the coral reef. There was a particular coral reef right in front of the house, uh, which had, I remember, a, an eel that was living in it. Uh, there was a school of yellowtail snapper also patrolling around um, that was always in the area. And at that time also, um, besides, I mean, by coincidence, uh, there was also Jacques Cousteau on TV every week or so, uh, exploring the ocean, various parts of the world. And we were the first ones to run out to one of the local stores in downtown Port-au-Prince and buy the, the fins, the mask, the snorkel. Remember the, the old black mask with the metal frame that held everything yeah. together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's where, that's where we were. That's, that's at the point where we were at. And it just came about, um, I loved animals, I loved the environment, I loved nature. So I was always in the ocean at that point, um, come out, you know, like a prune after being in the water for hours and hours and hours. And uh, my parents, of course, had to yell and scream, well, our parents had to yell and scream at us to get out of the water when it was time to go home. So talking, being in the water all the time and talking to local fishers in the area, um, also beginning to see the changes in the environment over the years, even at a young age. I mean, we're talking when I was uh, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 or so. So talking to the fishers, even at that point, and also seeing at that time, uh, some of the, the schools of fish, even over a five, five, seven, eight year period, even seeing the schools of fish that we would normally see uh, becoming fewer and fewer, less and less in terms of the schools themselves and less and less in terms of the fish themselves. And then the fishers, of course, telling us how bad things were and that the fisheries fishing is already getting worse. One of the things we, I also noticed at that time was, and again, this is in the span of less than a decade, uh, the jellyfish blooms, which would occur uh, at first, which were, you know, you'd see 
10, 20 jellyfish um, at one point when we just started, when we were about seven or so. And by the time we, we were, you know, 12, 13 or so, it had become thousands and thousands to the point where it was getting kind of sketchy, kind of eerie to get into the water because you'd get stung and, you know, it wasn't very nice after that point. Hmm. And also pollution beginning to enter the, the environment, also more pollution on the beaches. So again, this is in the span of about just a, a little bit less than a decade, I saw all of these changes. So going off to school, um, wanted to do biology. Of course, the parents wanted a doctor, wanted their, their kid to be the medical doctor and all, so started uh, biology programs and all. And then really, really found an affinity for, for just biology, for animals, and, uh, and wanting to, to really continue along those lines. So it was kind of a natural progression. Uh, it's something that I've always loved, something that I've always wanted to do, something which, again, you know, just came, just came naturally. So no big deal along those lines. Uh, and I still love it, still want to do it. Uh, unfortunately, these days, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I'm spending a lot more time uh, driving the computer instead of being out in the field where I'd really like to be because of the current situation in Haiti and having to do more administration and all of that. But it's still my first love and it's still where I really want to be. Mm. And uh, starting the foundation for ProBeam, the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Biodiversity, was a natural extension of all of that. Um, it was my observation that no one in Haiti was taking care of the coastline marine environment. We did not have a Ministry of Environment at that point in the country. Uh, all we had was a Ministry of Agriculture. And as many people know, Ministry of Agriculture in this case and in this situation and fisheries in particular is often a ministry of exploitation, not of um, protection. Mm. So basically nobody on Caribbean island state was doing anything in regards to protecting and managing the coastal marine environment. Perfect niche uh, started activities in 1992 and uh, the rest is history, as they say. We've come about 30 years now, and things are busier today than they've ever been. Uh, there was only one, one time back in, I guess around 20, 2008, 2010 or so, when things weren't looking that good. I actually considered shutting down and trying to find something else to do. But then things picked up and now again, we're the busiest that we've ever been. And we're actually um, scrambling around trying to figure out how we're going to manage a lot of the projects that we have at this point. Um, and we do work with everyone, United Nations, um, IDB, USAID, um, private foundations, Goldman, Woodley Fund for Nature. And our list is really, really long and growing. How has the nature of the work changed over time, John, since you started it? And has the and has the organization grown or more or less stayed the same size? I imagine when you started it, it wasn't very big. Yes, of course. So starting with just me, I uh, had a couple of friends uh, who used to hang out with me uh, at the beaches who I'm still, still some of my best friends. Uh, so they kind of helped a little bit at first, but primarily just me. And then working with some of the local fishing communities, uh, I picked up one of the fishers in one of those communities, uh, and he's still with us today. He's still on board and takes care of a lot of our field activities after 30 years. So we've been we've had this relationship for 30 years now. Right now we are at about um, I think last calculation was about 20. Okay. Uh, where we have. Five or six, five staff, and the rest are local, uh, local stakeholders, local people from the from the communities that help us, who are our eyes and ears out in the local communities. And we hope to be able to add. I think we're looking at another fourteen or so, 
with a new project which we just received. Uh, and so we'll continue to grow um, along those lines. Okay. And the work of yours that I'm most familiar with, Jean, is in the northeastern part of Haiti with respect to these formalized parks. Could you talk to me a bit about that specific project? Because that seems to be one of the biggest impacts that you've had through this work is the formalization of these protected areas. Right. So in 2013, I believe it was, gee, seems like a long time ago already. Uh, but uh, about that time, um, actually in about 20, 2011, 2010 or so, uh, we had undertaken a survey of the entire coast of Haiti in order to determine which areas would have the best potential for the creation of marine protected areas. So we came up with, I believe it was 11 locations. Uh, those were submitted to the government through various agencies and um, pushing in various ways, at various levels. And in 2013, the first two were declared, uh, the Three Bays Marine Protected Area in the Northeast and the Port Salut Aquin Protected Area in the Southwest. So those marine protected areas now are part of a network of seven. So we have seven in Haiti at this point. And most of our activities are, have been over the past few years, primarily based up in the three bays, up in the Northeast, with several projects going on there. And right now, uh, collaborative activities going on as well with um, an organization called AgroFrontera, in the Dominican Republic, working on binational activities, um, since the fisheries, of course, don't have any borders. Um, that whole area is a giant, uh, a giant, pro massively productive fishing area uh, with mangroves and coral reefs and seagrass beds, and it's just an incredible area. So, uh, in trying to ensure that everything is protected. Of course, the fish don't just stop at the Haitian or the Dominican border. We need to make sure that everything is well managed in that entire area. So the partnership with AgroFrontera is, is key to making sure that that happens. Hmm. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of what's happening there is, is ultimately running through AgroFrontera by Freddie Payton and with Fropovim under your leadership on the Haitian side. Um, it's interesting that the two of you particularly seem to be acting as kind of boundary actors, um, connecting lots of different groups. Do you perceive it that way? Yes, absolutely. Um, situation, of course, in, in each country is quite different. Mm -hmm. uh, Haiti has extreme poverty and, and a lot of other issues, which the Dominican Republic isn't particularly dealing with. So it's a little difficult to um even at times work on an equal basis in terms of what the needs are on each side of the border uh, but the end game is the same we want uh better protections for the for the ecosystems for the ecosystem services the fisheries the mangroves coral reefs and all of that so everyone can benefit and protect the environment so we can you know engage in ecotourism, uh, fisheries for the local people they can, so that they can have more fish to eat and things along those lines. So it's, it's, really, um, it's really an interesting binational activity between the, our two organizations. And it's really something which we both feel very strongly about is needed. Hmm. So Jean, would you say that the formation of this network of protected areas is one of your biggest accomplishments, the, the outcome that you're most proud of from the work you've been doing over the last several decades? Um, as I say, it, it was easy to do. It only took 30 years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, I think, uh, again, one of, the, one of our main goals was to have at least the creation of the marine protected areas, and we've achieved that. Uh, the problem now, of course, is the monitoring and the managing of those resources so that they don't remain as paper parks and we're working very hard with various institutions to try to make sure that that doesn't happen 
So right now, only the three bays up in the northeast of Haiti has a, um, an approved management plan. The one down in the Paul-Saliraquin area and, and has one which is under development but is having major hiccups. And the others don't have any type of management plan whatsoever. So as we expand a lot of our activities, we're trying to see if uh, we can at least establish management plans for a lot of the other marine protected areas. So at least they have a basis from which to start. Uh, similar to the laws, uh, you know, laws that we also help the government implement, such um, designate such as uh, protecting all of Haiti's mangroves and uh, making all plastic bags illegal. If you don't have, in, our, in that case, in the case of the marine protected areas, a management plan or the laws, you have nothing really to to begin the process with. It's kind of right. like, can I use the analogy again of if you if you build it, they will come. So uh, that's what we that's that's the the method we use for the creation of the marine protected areas in that the local population, the local government, the local NGOs, whoever really needs to be the one who says, okay, this is important, let's designate it. And then again, if you build it, they will come, support will then eventually come in. And that's exactly what happened. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the international support came in and is going to protected areas because they feel that uh, the first step was taken by the local people. Hmm. Um, you know, we, if you're looking from the outside, say we can't be more interested in protecting resources. We can't be more interested in helping you than you are in helping yourself. So at least take the first step and, and designate them. So that has worked pretty well so far. Um, and we hope to be able to designate more protected areas, uh, assign more management plans to the different protected areas, and really begin to, to begin the implementation of protective measures and um, just protecting and, and managing the, these areas because a lot of them are critically important for Haiti in many, many ways. And one of them, of course, is if they're properly managed uh, in a country as poor and economically depressed as Haiti, you'd have opportunities such as ecotourism and increased fisheries production to help with the uh, economic benefits. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things here. It's it's the challenge of the potential for a paper park where you have a park on paper, but it's not really enforced. So you've got formally, you've got something, but informally on the ground, it's often quite different. It's it seems like a natural question to ask, given what you said earlier, that you know historically there wasn't a ministry of the environment, there was a ministry of agriculture, and I take your point well. It's that in a lot of places, uh, agricultural agencies are, are are often not about conservation primarily. They're about it's a more productivist mindset. Um, and my impression also, given the work I've done with Freddie in the Dominican Republic, even there where there are more resources, it often has felt like the government in the fisheries sector is quite absent. And it's felt like some of the fishers in the, on the Dominican side feel like, well, the government has claimed formal authority over this, but then we don't see them. So it's this bind for the local fishers of feeling like they have not been empowered um, because of the mandate claimed over their fishing grounds by the government, but then the government is, is also absent. And I imagine that's been, I'm, I'm, I don't wanna project here, but. Um, my hypothesis is that's been a challenge in Haiti as well, along similar lines. No, absolutely. Um, a lot of these fishing communities can't even remember the last time they saw a higher level government official come around to do anything whatsoever. Um, I'm not sure, I think last count, and that was back in 2005 or so, I think for our approximately 2,000 kilometers of coast, we have two fishing agents from the Ministry of Agriculture. So a lot of these local communities are pretty much left to their own devices. They're, they're on their own. Um, the government can claim or say whatever it wants, but if they can't enforce laws, if they can't um, at least have a presence, 
if they can't uh, support what their mandate even uh, has them, you know, designated to do, then, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, fine. You guys say this is a protected area and whatever. Mm-hmm. So it falls often to NGOs such as ours to then try to work with the government officials and make that link between the government and the local fishery, fishermen, local uh, resource users, and try to make that link and try to get activities going, try to get people to understand what we're trying to do exactly and work together towards trying to achieve uh, our mutual goals, which is to ensure that the environment is in good condition and continues to produce. Uh, that's something which is critical at every point where a lot of people think, uh, because of course we're not we're not working in countries like Haiti on pure protection and uh, you know kicking everybody out of a protected area and saying okay nobody fish here and we're going to protect all the resources. Uh, these are areas in which the fisheries need to be managed so that so that they can t- continue to produce for the local populations. So the first thing we need to do when we go into a new area is make sure that everybody is on the same page. We want to protect the resources so that fishers can find enough to eat and continue to feed their families. And the fishers want the same thing. But there's often that initial conflict where, you know, you think you're on opposite sides, but in in all of these cases, well, in Haiti at least, we're on the same side. We both want more fish. And we both want to make sure that it's managed properly. And we're both trying to work together to, to see that happen. So uh, once that initial conflict, if you will, is, is uh, taken care of, then we can walk uh, hand in hand and try to make sure that uh, the resources are protected and managed properly. So in 2015, John, if I have it right, you won the Goldman Environmental Prize for this work and for the outcomes that it was produced. And I was watching the video of the talk you gave as a prize recipient. And, and one thing you said really uh, struck me is apparently a Haitian saying, which I'll try to reproduce here, is a horse with many masters dies tied to its post. And that's really quite striking. And it, it gets to some of these ideas that you're talking about now, I think. The importance of locals having a sense, and it's about ownership broadly in my mind and it's it really reminds me of the tragedy the commons narrative where if something's owned by many people that's the thing that actually is not taken care of um and it sounds like that's partly what you're reflecting on right now as well this idea that you need to have some folks need to have a sense of ownership over these conservation initiatives or it's all going to kind of fall apart eventually is that is that a, a helpful connection to be making here Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's exactly what it means. Um, If you have too many people in charge of something, everybody thinks that the other person is taking care of it. And in the end, nobody is taking care of it and bad things happen. So um, everybody needs to take responsibility for the exploitation of the resources, for trying to manage the resources, for anything along those lines. And sometimes I like to to pick a fight with some of the feistier fishermen um, and get into a discussion with them about why they're taking my fish out of the ocean. And, and the fight goes along the lines of, what are you talking about? It's, it's my fish, I caught it. I'm like, no, this is the country's fish. And in the country, these are my fish as well. So mm. what gives you the right to take my fish out of the ocean? And then the, the conversation slash argument goes from there, in which uh, as much right you, ha- you think you have to remove the fish from the water, I have to tell you to leave it in the water because it's mine too. So how come you get to exploit resources and benefit from it while I, I, I disagree? So it's a question really of um, explaining that the resources and everything that happens are really to the benefit of everyone. And so if you're going to be exploiting them, you should do it in a way which doesn't hinder how other people are going to benefit from them as well. 
if you're going to cut down mangroves along the coastal area, um, it's going to benefit you and maybe your family, but at the next storm, it's going to destroy 50 houses. So how are you going to balance your need for exploitation of a resource versus what, what the greater good is going to be? Uh, so, you know, these are the conversations which need to be brought about. These are the conversations which a lot of people don't even particularly think about. And they're a conversation which, um, you know, they, these conversations need to be had and at every level mm. from the guy cutting the, the mangrove tree for charcoal to the fisherman in his dugout canoe, all the way up to the minister and even the presidential level. Um, and this is in part where I guess some of the ecosystem services conversation comes in. What is the value of the resources that are being used or protected? What is their replacement value and how much is it costing everyone uh, to go back to the charcoal producers um, narrative there? If he makes $100 out of cutting down a bunch of mangrove trees, but it costs you $50,000 to replace the housing which was destroyed because of the mangroves he cut. What is the, what is the balance there? So, so this, type of this is the type of conversation which really needs to be had. Hmm. So a lot of what you're describing, Jean, involves, also, I guess I'll say intensive groundwork, engaging with people, involves, I imagine, a lot of of emotional intelligence, being able to read people, being able to respond to them based on where they're coming from. How have you detected over the course of, of this work? Has that has been, how did that appreciation for you develop? And you, have you seen that appreciation for the need to actually work with and engage with local folks also being reflected in, say, funding opportunities and the environment in which your NGO works? Has that changed or developed over your career? Absolutely. Again, um, it's, you really need to take into consideration, uh, as you just said, where the people are coming from. Um, when I go out into the field and I'm working with the fishermen or with salt producers or with uh, charcoal producers, 99% of the time, my stomach is full. Whereas a large portion of the time, theirs isn't. So you have to have an understanding, you have to have some empathy there to know that you're dealing with people who, um, you know, if they don't catch that fish that day, they're not eating and their family's not eating. If they don't produce that bag of charcoal that day, their kids aren't going to be able to pay for the doc. Well, they're not gonna be able to pay for the doctor for their kids or send their kids to school. Um, we in general, uh, a lot of our listeners are in a position in which these basic daily thoughts are not really you know on the top of our you know at the top of our our list of concerns whereas for most of the people we work with this is the prime concern um, where's my next meal coming from tonight or tomorrow so we have a lot of people who come into some of our communities um, and i've seen them in tourist areas and all uh, go out, you know, take a little boat tour or something, start yelling and screaming at the fishermen, uh, at the mangrove cutters, you know, you can't do this, it's bad for the environment. They think they're being good environmentalists or protecting the resources by just screaming at everyone and telling them they can't do this or that without providing any type of option. So at first we were primarily a research institution. Um, that's how Propobim was founded. Uh, we just wanted to do research. We just wanted to work on fisheries and coastal and marine ecosystems. But we quickly found out that, of course, the environment is fine all by itself. It's the people that cause issues and which need to, you know, their needs and concerns and their behavior needs to be addressed. So we quickly started engaging much more with local communities. Uh, evolving into, a, a, you know, being more concerned with how the communities are run, why the fishers and charcoal producers are doing a lot more of the sociological aspects, 
um, the economics of some of the, the reasons why things happen the way they do. And of course, over the years, we've discovered things which were just absolutely incredible uh, that we, we would have never thought, but by delving into some of these uh, issues, if you will, with some of the local communities and community members, we, we realize that, you know, some, some stunning stuff. But it's, it's definitely important to engage with the local communities. And we've grown along those lines. Right now, um, probably 80% of our work is working with the communities, educational activities, uh, association building, capacity building, working with them to try to, to uh, engage in environmentally friendly uh, economic activities, trying to relieve some of the pressure off of the, the marine, the coastal marine ecosystems. So yeah, you need to, there, there's, no, there's no way to, to tease out really one uh, little issue or one little sector if you want to have a large impact, you're going to really have to attack all of these different issues at the same time because they're all interlinked. Mm -hmm. uh, the poverty issues, you know, poverty issues, and you go to overfishing, you go to charcoal production, um, a decrease in in fish catch causes the the mesh size in the nets to go down, uh, which then causes you to catch more juveniles and destroys ecosystem even more so in a lot of these situations you're heading down heading down the drain for lack of a better term where you're you're compounding the issues as the issues get worse the quote-unquote solutions are even worse than if you had just stayed where you were and, and continued doing what you were doing so we're trying to stop those types of of uh of issues and trying to reverse, of course, where we can. Yeah, the language that I've found helpful to describe this kind of process, John, is kind of coping versus adapting. And we can, I feel like we can get these kind of coping spirals where we're not addressing the fundamental issues, but we're just kind of, and it's kind of what you're talking about with folks who don't have the luxury of looking far ahead. They have to figure out how they're coping for today, tomorrow. Um, but over time, that can entrench a very difficult situation, it seems. Exactly. John, you mentioned that engaging with the communities it was really um, a productive process for you. Can, can you think of any particular instances when you were engaging with folks and you kind of had an aha moment or something that surprised you, something that kind of tested an assumption that you came in with? Um, let's see. There was... There's one community out in a place called Faeton, which is near Foliberté, again, in the three bays in the Northeast, where um, in general, you find that, uh, well, let me go back one step. We had, we had initiated a, an, a process, an activity, in which we had told local communities uh, if they could provide us with a project because we wanted them to begin to develop and increase their own capacity, their own thought processes in, in some of these activities. So we told, I think it was eight communities, if uh, you could come up with an activity for the community, which is environmentally friendly and sustainable and can provide income for at least 20 people, we would give you $10,000 to do that activity and that project. Um, we waited six, eight months, and unfortunately, no one was able to present, not even a project which was environmentally friendly and sustainable, but any project. Hmm. None, of these, none of these communities had the capacity to uh, develop a project. So in the end, uh, we had one community which we were working with which we thought could be interesting to work with on another note. I mean, it wasn't particularly related to the first initiative. So we gave them $5,000 to begin some apicultural 
uh, activities, buy some hives, and uh, and work with uh, work with their community. Get somebody to come in and give them apiculture activities and, and classes and things along those lines. Uh, they ended up doing twice the amount of hives that they had asked for. They developed a small aquaculture pond in a defunct um, salt pan, which was near their neighborhood. They uh, cleaned up their community. They organized people to clean up their community, uh, sweeping the streets and getting rid of trash and everything. Uh, they provided some, some activities for one of the local schools with the school children there. I mean, they went so far above and beyond anything we thought that they could possibly do that uh, we decided to continue to help them and fund them. Not just because they did what they did, which of course was great all by itself, but to show the other local communities as well that they need to step up their act pretty much. Mm -hmm. They, you know, and we tell them all the time, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to help you with this and that. But you need to put some skin in the game you need to show that you can take the ball and run with it. And just like everything, including us at FOPROBIM, you know, if you show that you can get the work done and that you can do things, more will come to you. So some of the communities have done better than others, but I think that that entire, um, that entire type of, of initiative, I think is really working well to help get the local communities to really begin to Put some skin in the game and see that if they do that, invest in themselves, basically, mm -hmm. we can all just help each other move along a lot faster. Because what we've got right now is a situation where after the earthquake in 2010 in particular, uh, a lot of NGOs, a lot of fly-by-night NGOs went down to Haiti and just gave away things gave away food and materials and and whatever that they had without asking any of the local communities to participate in anything they just gave stuff away made them feel good and then they left after a year or two or three made themselves feel good yeah made the ngos feel good you know yep. oh look at what we did we gave you know we gave you know 20 tenths and walk away mm -hmm. uh, so that has created a lot of problems with us in which when we enter a new area, a lot of people think, oh, look, another NGO. Right. And, you know, why don't you guys just give us what you came to give us and be on your merry way. And of course, working in Haiti for 30 years, we're obviously there for the long term, and that's not how we work. So it causes a lot of conflict at times where uh, people want to befriend us because they're thinking that if they do, they'll immediately, you know, get whatever we have that we're giving. Mm -hmm. uh, giving out or giving away. Uh, oftentimes when they realize that, uh, no, you're going to have to put some skin in the game. Mm -hmm. um, if we're going to do apiculture, you're going to have to give the land where we can install the, the, the hives. If we're going to you know, go out and protect the mangroves, for you, you're going to have to donate your boat time for some time, you know, and... So there's, there's got to be a give and take. We can provide some of the resources, but we're certainly not going to provide all of them and just give you mm -hmm. things. So we, um, we almost need to reverse what happened after the earthquake uh, that a lot of the NGOs kind of messed up, to put it bluntly, um, in terms of Haitian society. So we need to really work with the local communities, have them understand that if they work with us, if they put some skin in the game, if they're willing to put in the extra effort, that we're also willing to put in the effort, extra effort to work with them mm -hmm. and to go look for potential funding and opportunities for them as well. But if, for example, I won't name any names, but they went around and gave the local communities a lot of boats and motors, um, some of these communities which received boats and motors don't have any left anymore after about 10 years. They sold the boats, sold the motors, and 
when we go to them now and and they're like okay you know we would like to support you what have you done and what you know like we know you received boats and motors where are they well they're gone mm -hmm. and it's like okay well we don't feel like working with you anymore because you took the resources that you were given and basically sold them um, now there's an economic factor in that as well in which of course uh, you give uh, an association which maybe makes $200 in, in membership fees a year, you give them a $7,000 boat and a $4,000 motor, you're kind of asking for, for trouble there eventually. Yep. So that's kind of exactly what happens. And it's, it's also an issue of some of these organizations not understanding the local context. Um, you give boats and motors. I would love to give boats and motors and fish in particular to every community we work with. But you know, well, I know through work that if, I, if we give boats and motors to uh, some of these communities, you're gonna have two or three people who are going to be the heads of the organization who are going to take the boats and motors, use it for them and their friends, the equity non-existent. And then once they're tired or get an opportunity, they're going to sell the boat for $7,000 and pocket the money. So uh, people say we may be mean. We don't know what we're doing because, you know, um, you know, all you need to do is give the fishers bigger boats and bigger motors. And that's not the solution in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm actually probably cause more problems than if it was just left alone. So John, this is reminding me of a term that I learned in grad school called co-production, which is a way to describe um, a way of a type of relationship between a service provider and a service receiver. And it represents a move away from this idea that the service provider should be providing everything on their own and that the mm -hmm. receiver, that it should be less asymmetric, that and this, this is a way of describing relationships in education, kind of any place where you have this type of relationship. And it sounds like that's probably what you're saying is that conservation and development need to be co-produced by local communities. It's, it can't be seen as like a service that's, that's provided from the outside externally, also often, often without a lot of input from locals who are quote unquote beneficiaries. Yes, that's, that's what's going on here in, in large part. There is no way, um, unless you have a protected area in which, for example, you kick everybody out and then try to manage it just with a management team, that you can work uh, that way. In Haiti, since we are going to have um, resource users based within the protected areas, everybody has to be on board. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of just going in and saying, okay, we're going to do this, this, and that, and uh, hope for the best. Right. Everybody has to be on board. And to a large extent, um, although it's sometimes, sometimes can be very strong, but in situations such as Hades, uh, where we know what's going on, oh, it's very weak, uh, the concept, well, not the concept, but the use of peer pressure um, is something where is almost the only thing we're kind of left with at this point hmm. because we have no way to enforce the laws. We have no way to, to provide any penalties for anyone doing anything they shouldn't. So it almost comes down to just being able to explain to people, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. And these are the pros and cons and benefits and deficits and and all, you know, all the mechanisms that, of what's going on and hope that they can pressure each other into uh, doing the right thing. It's incredibly difficult. It's not working well, but it's all we've got, really, at this right. point. We have no police. We have no game wardens. And um, again, tragedy of the commons. Everyone is going to use everything that's public domain until there's nothing left. So un unless we can manage some of these areas with uh, the laws we have, 
provide enforcement, provide penalties, we're not going to get too far. And the only recourse we have is peer pressure at this point. Right. I mean, it sounds like what you're essentially describing is trying to change local social norms so that people enforce different behaviors on each other. Right. John, one thing that also occurs to me when you compare what you're trying to do with a more fly-by-night model is this issue of kind of measurability or legibility or visibility, kind of the same set of terms to describe this, right? If I go in and I'm running an NGO and I give some folks a bunch of tents, that's very measurable, right? Like I gave them 40 tents and they're there. I have it checked on a box. That's easier to measure than, well, I'm trying to get, I, I convinced five people to peer pressure each other is much more diffuse and sounds loosey goosey. How does this approach that you're taking affect your ability to report to funders what you're doing? Is it more challenging the way I'm kind of hypothesizing that it is versus something where it's, we're giving away some goodies that's, account, that's easily put into accounting framework versus the softer, but like actually more difficult work of changing norms and culture? No, absolutely. It's, it's uh, extremely difficult when you're dealing with working, in, working with societal norms. It's, you know, as you said, you, you go and you give 50 tenths and you check the box and you're done. Sometimes we have organizations which ask us, uh, you know, how are you going to measure uh, the fact that you've changed the mindset of a hundred people. And it's, you know, you can't measure that because of course the person can come in, take your whatever, take 10 months of environmental uh, management and environmental concepts and ecosystem management and everything else. And you would think that they'd go out and be, you know, be the, the world's greatest environmentalist and protecting their resources. But if they've still got to eat, and all they know how to do is fish the way they've been fishing. You know, you've done the classwork, but you, ha you haven't necessarily changed the attitude. So those types of, of concepts are extremely difficult to, to um, put into integers, mm -hmm. if you want. How many yep. have you actually done? So in large part, it's kind of, okay, um, you know, we're going to have environmental classes for, you know, 100 people for three days. and present all of these, these concepts. And it's not something which is going to change overnight either. And as mm -hmm. I had said previously, you also need to provide the alternatives. You need to be able to say, okay, um, we're gonna take you out of the water and we're going to give you this type of work to do. And uh, you'll, make, uh, you'll make more money if you do it instead. Right. I mean, that's, so that's something so I've talked to. Sorry, John, go ahead. No, no, no. Just saying it's, it's just that you really need to be able to provide the alternatives to stuff. Uh, people in general, if, well, you can say in general, but fishers are a different breed. If, if you can provide most people with something else, which they can make more money, a lot of them will go towards it. Mm -hmm. However, my, our experience with fishers is, they're a different breed, certainly, whether they're in a dugout canoe in Haiti or on a 50 Big foot lobster boat in Maine or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or a 50 foot Hatteras out in the middle of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, they like to work on their own schedule, on their own time. There's a different mentality there. Um, we have the industrial park in Caracol, which uh, opened up a few years ago, and a lot of the fishermen were asked to go work at the industrial park. 95% of them said no. Mm -hmm. They prefer to wake up when they want, go out and fish when they want, do what they want when they want, and having a nine to five job, no way. Yeah. So there's a mentality there as well. And again, you have to work around and through all of these. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me of the fishery systems that I've been looking at a little bit in the Gulf of Maine when we hear the same thing that for a lot of fishers there, fishing is a strong part of their personal social identity. 
And there has been a move to move them towards aquaculture as an alternative livelihood. And the, the data show that that's not happening, that the aquaculture that's, that's popping up in the Gulf of Maine is not, um, it's not fishers who are doing it. And I think a, a, another part of that story, which I, don't, I haven't heard from you that strongly yet, is also the, the bureaucracy and the technical skills that are required. So there's lots of permits that you need. There's new, there's new rules you need to follow and new skills you need to have to make this transition. But I mean, so this is something I've talked to Freddie from Agrofontera about a fair bit. And it sounds like for you, alternative livelihoods is an important part of this recipe of moving folks away from the fishing sector um, and getting them something that they can rely on economically that's not catching fish. So like the apiary idea is, is one that I've heard several times. Right, it's, it's becoming a larger and larger part of what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. In part because less than, I think the calculations were about less than 40% or so of the fishers who are actually out on the water right now um, have a history of fishing or family or themselves. I think you were part of that study. I don't remember exactly what the numbers were, but a large part of the people out on the boats right now are not fishermen. They've entered the fishing sector out of economic need mm -hmm. because whatever they were doing on the terrestrial side just wasn't working. So they joined fishing crews on some of these boats and go out to fish. So a lot of them at this point still do not really have a history of fishing and can still potentially be brought back onto the terrestrial side to, to work on something economically viable. For the fishermen, um, we are, we're trying to, for in a large extent, trying to keep them in the water. We're trying to uh, for example, switch out their fishing gear for gear which is more suitable and more sustainable and importantly also legal. A lot of what they're using now is not legal. Is uh, the mess, mesh size thing, issue a little bit? The mesh sizes on both the traps and the nets, mm -hmm. which are seriously damaging the, the fisheries in the areas where we're working. And uh, seaweed production. Potentially, we haven't gotten to it yet, but it's on our radar. And it's also, um, maybe not exactly as you were talking about the fishers in, in Maine, but it's at least to keep them in the water also in, a, in an environment that they know and that they're familiar with. So um, it's, again, we're all alone, barely have any um, public sector support because they just don't have the resources or the, the knowledge to, to help us. And we're trying to manage and juggle all of these types of initiatives and activities pretty much on our own in the most environmentally degraded and economically depressed country in the Western hemisphere, as they like to, to quote it as. So it's really, really a lot of work, a lot of juggling and a lot of trying to see what works and what doesn't. Of course, what works in Maine isn't gonna work in Haiti. What works in the Dominican Republic more than likely also will not work in Haiti, even, even closer island-wise and although not economically. So we're dealing with incredible pressures on environmental resources as well as economically and trying to, trying to get to that breakout point, if you will, where you can really take off in a certain direction where, you know, okay, we're really moving forward and we're really taking off in this and the economics are working and the environmental protection is working and the environmental management is working to get to that breakover breakout point is, is critical. Um, and we're struggling to get there. Mm. John, do you have hopes that things could change for the better on the Haitian government side? Um, the Haitian government, we primarily need for enforcement and um, political support. Mm -hmm. uh, the technical skills and all, I think, is something which I hope will eventually come, but they don't have it right now. Uh, but we, we particularly need them 
to enforce the laws calmly, gently, delicately, preferably. <laughs> we don't need to make any enemies or anything, but we need, you know, we need to show that there is a presence, that there are people who are, you know, watching what you're doing, making sure that you're following the rules and all of that. Um, we don't need people out there, you know, arresting people and breaking bones and, and things like that. So that's what we primarily need the, the government for at this point. And the past few years have not been particularly um, encouraging mm -hmm. in Haiti. Um, at the beginning of the 2000s and 2010s, things were okay. But the past few years in particular in Haiti have been particularly bad with of course, the gangs and the kidnappings, the presidential assassination, the attempt on the prime minister's life and and all of that. So I understand that those in the government in general have higher priorities, um, you know, trying to get the country back on track. But you also don't want to let things slide back. Uh, least slide back too much where you'll have to go back now really in and lose, you know, 10 or 20 years of, of work. So um, hope springs eternal, but things aren't looking good right now. Okay. And John, you're, you're based in Washington, D.C., if I remember rightly. When's the last time you were able to get back to Haiti? Um, went down twice last year, and this year I'm hoping to go back in, in March. Okay. For two or three weeks. We have a lot of projects and a lot of a lot going on that I need to go check up on. But um, I also see this as an opportunity for my team down in Haiti to be able to develop their skills, develop their strengths without me constantly being there and hovering over them. Because I'm not going to do this forever, of course. And um, it's an opportunity for them to to get into the game and see how things actually work, how things are done. Um, while, of course, I'm still here to support them and guide them in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I'm usually down in Haiti once, well, before COVID and before all the political situation was going south in Haiti. I was usually down at least once a month. So these past this past year or so has given them an opportunity to, I think, a good opportunity to increase their, their capacities of management and skills. So John, you mentioned towards the beginning of the interview that what initially motivated a lot of this was your personal kind of visceral connection with the place, with the water. And now, like a lot of us, you're staring at a screen a lot of the time. Is a lot of your current work based on um, securing funds for projects, engaging with potential funders. Is that a lot of your day-to-day -day now? Yep, unfortunately. It's, um, it's doing a lot of the administrative work, um, project mm -hmm. designing projects, following through, um, again, the administration, making sure that we have projects in the pipe, projects that we're working on are going well, projects in the pipeline, and that we know where we're, we're going in terms of activities and, and uh, and administration, which is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the water. I wanted to be with my mangroves and the fish and, and all that. But um, situation doesn't allow it. So you mm. make best um, of the situation that you're in. And whenever I do get back down to Haiti, I, of course, get into the first thing I do is get back into the water, get back into the field, see what's going on, go and count my mangrove trees and my fish and, and all of that. So yeah, it's a lot more administration these days, uh, driving a desk instead of being out in the field. Mm -hmm. And I feel it, I, I really get the itch and I really wanna get back out into the field and, and do what I had initially planned. Yeah. I mean, it's challenging, John. I, I feel like we always want these kind of happily ever after stories, and that's just not what life in the world provides. In spite of the challenges that you all are facing, what still inspires you and keeps you going? Is it the engagement with certain people? Is it remembering that you're going to get in the water again someday? Is it 
or is it certain milestones that you set for yourself? What keeps you motivated to do the work? Well, in part, yeah, which a uh, bit of what you mentioned. Um, it's being able to get out into the field, do some of the work that I had originally wanted my work to be. But also there's, um, as much as there are individuals in particular that you become extremely discouraged with and um, you have major problems with, uh, there are as many or more who you feel encouraged by hmm. and who appreciate the work, who really want things to continue and expand and are willing to put in the extra effort. Um, so it's a little bit of, of uh, both of those. And also the milestones, um, being able to say, you know, well, we did this, we did that, and we've worked with this group and that group and um, doing some good, I feel. Uh, both myself and my team, you know, we, we feel that we're, we're working on things which most people in Haiti can't do. Um, and we have a certain role to play. And along those lines, you know, as, as I've said in many situations, that each person has, can, has and can play a specific role in helping, helping others, helping their country, helping the environment. And for us, this is what we feel we can do. I think that we're all very happy, all intent on what we're doing. And I think we do it well. And if other people did, you know, what they could do, if, you know, if other people can clean streets, if other people can run a country, if other people can do things to help, I think, uh, I think we'd all go a little bit further. Mm. Um, just a couple more, more questions, John. If looking back on the time that's passed since you started Fulprovim, are there any things you would do differently? Are there times you remember thinking to yourself, oh, I wouldn't make that decision again, or a, a lesson that you've learned that you want to communicate? Um, oddly enough, I think things have gone fairly well. Um, I can't think of any particular case in which I, I would say I would have done things differently. Um, maybe a couple of situations where we were taken advantage of by either someone or another organization. And uh, maybe I should have seen it coming. Mm -hmm. But other than that, uh, I think we've, we've done okay. There are certain situations in which maybe I got too stressed out about um, an impending situation and it ended up being nothing. Um, but besides that, I think we've done we've done okay. Yeah, I think for many, many people, it's hard to not get stressed out about what I, what in our mind is an impending situation. Yeah. <laughs> it, it very randomly reminds me of one of my favorite lyrics from a Tom Petty song, which is most things they worry about never happen anyway. Right. Um, exactly. I, I have a, I have a three word little sticker right in front of my desk here from a movie, I can't remember what it was called anymore, but with Tom Hanks, in which uh, there was a, it's a movie about a spy, I think, in, in Berlin during World War, right at, during the Cold War or something. Mm -hmm. And they were going to, they were trying to get him out of Germany, I think, and into onto the US side, and they were trying to kill him and all of this. And Tom Hanks in, the, in his role was asking the guy, you know, they're trying to kill you. They're trying to defame you. They're trying to, why don't you seem worried? And the guy said, would it help? Because he really just wasn't worried. It's like, it's going to happen or whatever, you know, it doesn't help if I just worry about it. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what I try to keep in mind as well. Wait for it to happen. if It's going to happen, but not necessarily worry about it in the meantime. Yeah. No, that's good. I feel like, yeah, it's helpful to be in conversations where you are reminded of these things as well. We all need to kind of hear the same advice from each other. Absolutely. That's somehow harder to give to yourself. Um, That's the support network. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, okay, Jean. So we talked a bit about 
the the recent collaboration with Agrofrontera and with Freddie Payton. Um, considering that, or apart from that, moving forward, what are the main challenges you want to continue to meet and the goals that you'd like to meet over the next however many years, the next phase? Well, for the next phase, I think um, we're going to be looking a lot at trying to strengthen both FOPROBIM as well as some of the government agencies that we rely on and uh, the marine protected areas. So I think we're, we're probably a, maybe in a way spread out as much as we want to be. And now we need to concentrate on building up what is already there. We need to, we need to do a lot of strengthening for enforcement, for management plans, for resources and capacity. Um, I don't think we can spread out much further in terms of uh, probably more marine protected areas, um, although it's always welcome. But I think it's time to start filling in now and, and uh, strengthening the foundation of what we've already established, what we've already done, and get that really in a good position to move forward. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that also reminds me of a challenge that many of us have is feeling spread too thin. Whenever I get stressed, it's because I have too many items on my checklist that I'm thinking about at once. And it's just, if I just focus on two or three, then suddenly things feel a little more manageable. I guess that lessens scales. Absolutely. Um, all right, John, well, this has been great. Are there other topics, threads of the conversation you wanna make sure we cover? Um, no, I think we've covered quite a bit. Um, I think it was really good, and I appreciate you taking the time, Michael. As always, it's always good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, John. <laughs> Thanks again for taking the time. All right. Have a good one. Take, Take care. care. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.